0: Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in.
1: Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Couple, couple quick announcements. Uh, first one, um, there's a new pulpit here. It, it is. We have the old one over here as well. We, um, I, this was a surprise to me. Um, the board and Pastor Kevin, the board and the staff, they surprised me on Tuesday after our staff meeting. They're like, we have a surprise for you. Wait here. And I didn't know this was coming. So um, they, I think they felt like the other one was a little too short for me. <laughs> so they definitely made this one taller. And uh, I, I think it's beautiful. And one of the, the guys in the church Um, made this. And I love, he he wrote up here, and you can come check this out after the service. He wrote up here, and these beautiful words says, only Jesus. And what a great reminder, even just for me, as I um, stand up here. It said, only about Jesus. And then um, Pastor Doug sent me a, a note last night, and he wanted just He wanted me to read it to you this morning, and um, I said absolutely, and so I'm just going to read his words to you. He says, words seem inadequate in describing our gratitude for last weekend. It was one of the greatest highlights of our lives. We were and are overwhelmed by the love and support we felt and feel from all of you. Thank you for the beautiful cards and gifts. Our prayers are with CCSE as you continue to grow in the grace of Christ, Keep looking to Jesus. We love you all, Doug and Janet. So he extends his greetings, and I'm pretty sure him and Janet are watching this morning. So could we just acknowledge them, say good morning, Pastor Doug and Janet. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue in our series, our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning and for those that are like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. It's only 13 verses. So rest assured, You're like this new guy, man, he's really, you know, picking up speeds. No, it's, a, it's just 13 verses. First Corinthians chapter five, as we've been seeing in our study thus far, that the, the apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church that he had founded some years um, back, a church that had lost its way. But these, we need to remember, these are true believers that he is writing to. These are people that have been saved by the grace of God. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. But as we've been seeing at some point in this church, sin crept in. And when sin crept in, it ruined everything. And this church was dealing with many issues. They were dealing with um, sex and alcohol issues greed and envy and quarreling and divisions there were problems in marriages people were getting divorced there were lawsuits happening between believers they were abusing the gifts of the spirit they were even abusing the lord's table and to boil it all down this church who had again been redeemed by jesus had become a mess They had lost their way. And as we've been seeing, the world had a greater influence on them than they had on the world. And as we saw last time, this church had become arrogant, puffed up, proud. And Paul said in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, You are already filled. You have become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. And so these carnal, worldly Corinthian believers were just so smug and proud of their spirituality that they couldn't see the truth about their condition. In their eyes, they thought they had grown past their need for instruction and correction. And in chapter four, we saw that Paul, he called them out on the carpet you guys think that you're so high and mighty. You guys just feel like you're up here and everyone else is just down there. Well, I've got news for you. You're not. You're nothing special. And Paul kind of just lays into them. That's a good song. What do we got? Yeah, I love it. That's great. Paul lays into them, but he did, again, he doesn't lay into them to shame them. He doesn't lay into them to crush them, but rather he says, I'm writing these things to you, although harsh, because I love you. I need you to, I need to correct you in your wrong ways of thinking because your wrong ways of thinking have, have turned into wrong ways of living. And Paul would say, guys, I love you like my own children. And in chapter 4, Paul addressed the church in Corinth as a spiritual father. He said in verse 15, for if, you were, uh, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, you've had many teachers. You've had many tutors. Apollos, Peter. But he says, you have just one spiritual father. And he says, that was me, That was the Apostle Paul. And as their spiritual father, Paul was needing to correct his spiritual children in the error of their ways. And he ends that section of chapter four in an interesting way when he says in verse 19, But I will come to you soon. And if the Lord wills, I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So Paul's writing to them and he says, guys, I can come to you one of two ways. I can come to you in love, spirit of gentleness, or I can come to you with a rod, just with discipline. And how he came to them as their spiritual father was going to be based upon how they responded to the correction that he was giving them in this letter if they confessed and repented of their sins, then he could just come to them in love, spirit of gentleness. But if not, he was gonna have to come to them with a rod. And I liken it to, if you were anything like me growing up, when we were younger, if I was having a, a mouthy day with my mom and you know not respecting her like I should, she would look at me, and this thankfully didn't happen too often, but I had a, I had a good fear of my father in me. And uh, she would say to me, she's like, if you don't straighten up, you're gonna go and sit on your bed until your dad gets home. It's like, oh man, I know I crossed, I pushed her too far and things might get ugly later. But that's kind of what the apostle Paul is saying. I can come to you in love or I can come to you as a father with a spirit of discipline and a rod, but the choice is up to you. But this church needed discipline. Again, they had lost their way. Sin had crept in and their tolerance towards sin was growing. And that's what I want us to see this morning. The question for us is then, how do we deal with sin in the church? The church in Corinth had fallen into sin and it had wrecked them. So how do we deal with sin in the church? I believe that's the question that 1 Corinthians chapter five answers. So now that brings us to verse one of chapter five. It says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So here's the issue. You have this guy in the church who is having a sexual affair with his father's wife or his stepmom. That's what's going on in this church. And Paul says to them, like, not even the Gentiles, not even the pagans tolerate this. Like, forget about the standards of the church and the scriptures, right? Leviticus 18 clearly forbids this. Like, you're not even meeting the standards of Corinth. And remember, Pastor Doug, in our first study in Corinthians, laid out, and he described Corinth in this day. Corinth was known as a place of sexual immorality and sexual promiscuity, And above the city sat the temple uh, of Aphrodite, the the sex goddess that they worshipped. This was the place where one historian says that on any given day, there was probably a thousand prostitutes just walking the streets of the city. This was a place where its name Corinth became synonymous with loose living. If someone was known as wild, reckless, or careless in their lifestyle, you would refer to them as being rather Corinthian. But it was so known for its sexual immorality, again, that one commentator said that to Corinth, someone became known as to have sex with them outside of marriage. And Paul says to this church, what you are doing is even offensive to them. That's how grotesque this is. Now, I want you to notice that this wasn't just a one-time incident, We're talking about ongoing sin. Notice that Paul is speaking in the present tense here. He says in verse one, he says, someone has his father's wife, not had his father's wife, not had a one night stand with his father's wife, but has, this is an ongoing sin issue. This is an ongoing relationship. And it's not just this one man. He says, notice in verse one, there's immorality among you. That word immorality in the Greek is pornea. And it's where we get the word pornography. Pornography. And it communicates not just general immorality and sin, but sexual immorality, lust, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest. And it keeps getting worse. Look at verse 2. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So not only are they sinning in this grotesque way, but they're celebrating their sin. And Paul's response to them is, you shouldn't be celebrating this. You should be mourning. This should cause you to weep. You should be filled with tears. This word mourning is used for like the the type of mourning you would over the dead, over a loved one who had passed away, that deep sorrow that we would feel. That's the type of mourning the Apostle Paul is saying, you should be filled with when you look at sin. But instead of mourning, the church in Corinth was puffed up in their arrogance. Oh, look how accepting we are. Aren't we so gracious? Paul is saying to them, this is wrong. This is sinful. This is offensive to God, and it should not be tolerated. You should be grieving over sin, not celebrating it. Let me me ask you this morning, what is your attitude towards sin? Do you have a tolerant attitude towards sin? Have you learned to accept it, to tolerate it in your life, but also how about in the lives of others around you? Have we grown to accept the things that God has rejected? Those are strong words. And you might say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought we weren't supposed to judge. (laughs) Listen, everyone sins. Let's be honest. Each and every one of us in this room will be tempted with sin throughout our lives. This is the battle that we're always going to face. This is the battle between the flesh and the spirit. As Pastor Doug has always taught us, our flesh will never be converted. It's gonna be something that we're gonna always have to battle with and kill on a daily basis. and Sometimes a moment by moment basis throughout the day. But there is a big difference between struggling with sin and celebrating it. And that's where this church was at. They were celebrating sin. There's a difference between recognizing your sin as wicked and brushing it off like it's no big deal. And to capture the difference, I want to share with you a word that most of you probably know if you've been around the church. And that word is repentant. It's a very important word. The word repentant comes from the word repent. And to repent basically means to turn around, to stop what you're doing or the direction that you're heading and to turn around, to change the course. If I personally am going in a direction in my life towards greed or lust or rage, if I'm going in this direction and to repent would be to turn around, to repent of my sin, to turn from my sin and to pursue Jesus, to trust in Jesus. And it's not, repentance is not a one-time thing that you do at conversion when you give your life to the Lord. Nor is it just a, 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 an annual thing, you know, for your big mess-ups in life. You're like, oh man, I fell, fell short today. Like, I better repent. No, repentance is an ongoing posture that acknowledges sin for what it is, seeks forgiveness, restoration, and growth in Jesus. It doesn't hide sin, It doesn't justify sin. It doesn't dismiss it. It doesn't minimize sin. I want you to listen to this again. To be repentant means to have an ongoing posture that acknowledges sin for what it is and seeks forgiveness, restoration, and growth in Christ. And so that means to be unrepentant means that you don't acknowledge your sin for what it is and you continue in it. And so church, the question is not, do we struggle with sin? Of course we do, we all do. The question though, for each and every one of us is are you repentant or unrepentant? You see, the goal of the Christian life is not to be perfect. We'll never be perfect. The goal is to be repentant. Sin will be an ongoing temptation and struggle. Sometimes I I love to have coffee with those, men that are much older and wiser than me. And one of the disappointing things, though, about having coffee with those older guys, because I'm hoping for an easy answer. I'm hoping that life gets easier when you get older, right? I'm hoping that temptation, the battle of the flesh, just gets older. And I tell you, nine times out of ten, I have these conversations with these older gentlemen that I love and respect. He says, oh, my flesh is just as rotten today. <laughs> I have to fight my flesh just as much today as I did when I was in my 30s. And I'm like, just take me down, Lord, just take me now, <laughs> So again, we're not going to experience perfection on this side of eternity, but we can be repentant. We can ex- we, we're going to experience temptation and sin throughout our lives, but now we know how to respond, right? That we confess it, that we bring sin into the light so that we can experience forgiveness and healing and restoration, that we can grow from it. I think about King David. King David is like the greatest example of this to me. King David is known in Scripture as being a man after God's own heart. He was looked at as the model, the example in so many ways. You think of all the kings in Judah that came after him. King David was the standard. Like, he didn't follow in the ways of his father David, right? Or he did. He was the standard. Why was that, though? Was it because he was perfect and sinless? Absolutely not, right? You guys know King David. King David's track record is clear in Scripture. He was a murderer an adulterer. He was filled with pride in seasons, greed. But King David, yet he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Not because he was perfect, but because he was repentant. Read Psalm 51 when you have a spare spare chance. And you'll see how David responds when he's confronted in the sin. I'm going to read the first four verses. This, these are the words of David. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Notice that once David is confronted with his his sin, when when Nathan the prophet came to him and and confronted him, that David didn't blame shift here. He owns it. He recognizes that his his sin was an offense to God. But he also recognizes that God is gracious and merciful. He's forgiving and he renews us from the inside out. Let me ask us all this morning, what sin are we... Struggling with. What sin are we giving into? Whatever it is, don't hide it. Let's not let's not be a people that justify sin. Let's not give into it. Let's repent of it. Let's bring it into the light. Let's confess it, experience forgiveness, and then grow out of it. We can be, we can, we can just be we can learn to be repentant followers of Jesus together. I think of one of my favorite passages of scripture is 1 John 1, 9. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful? But the problem here in our passage is this man is unrepentant. The issue is his unrepentant sin. And that leads us to Paul's solution. What does Paul have to say about it? Look at the second half of verse two. He says, "'The one who had done this deed "'would be removed from your midst. "'For I, on my part, though absent in body, "'but present in spirit, "'have already judged him who has so committed this "'as though I were present.'" in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So Paul simply says this, remove this man from your community. Remove him from the church. And this is what we would call church discipline. Now, if you're new to church, you might be like, what? Church discipline? Yes, church discipline. Jesus himself laid out a pretty clear teaching about church discipline and how to deal with unrepentant sin in the church. And so I want to um, turn to Matthew chapter 18, and it'll be on the screen. You can turn there if you'd like. But Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, these are the words of Jesus. And he says, if your brother sins, this is how we deal with with sin in the church. This is the method of, of church discipline. And so, again, we're talking about the church here. These are brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is a family matter. He says in verse 15 if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If someone, listen, if someone sins against you, he says, go talk to them. It doesn't say text them. It doesn't say, you know, put a Facebook rant about them, you know, or go to every person that they know in the church and just say, Would you pray for them about this? Like, I see them struggling. Like, it doesn't say that, okay? It says, You go and you talk to that person if they've sinned against you. And then he says, If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal? If you go and you talk about that sin and they go, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry. Thank you, Like I I, I see what you're, I recognize that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Let's pray together, let's move forward together. Hopefully that's the end of it. But Jesus keeps going in verse 16, but he says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And so if he doesn't listen to you one-on-one, he says, Get a few people, ideally people that this person knows and loves. And as you go to them together and you say, hey, we we love you. Like we are coming to you out of a place of love. And what the Bible says about what you've done or what you're doing right now is sinful. We want to invite you to walk in repentance with Jesus. We want you to walk in newness of life. We love you and we're here to walk with you. And hopefully the goal would be that they would repent, that they would see that this wasn't just a a personality conflict of just one-on-one, but there's multiple people that see the error in their ways. But in verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And in this case, it broadens it. What we would say for us is you would bring it to the pastors or the elders of the church. We would represent the church here. And this would be the stage in church discipline where you would bring it again to us and as pastors and elders, we would get involved and we would pray and we'd seek the Lord on what's going on. And then we would do something very similar. We would come alongside that person and say, we love you. But this is what God's word says. And we're here to walk alongside of you. We want to trust Jesus with you. And we're, we want to pray for you through this. That's our, that would be our heart. But then it says at the end of verse 17, this is just, this is, these are Jesus' words. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what's interesting about this is that Jesus loves Gentiles and tax collectors. Isn't that true? He didn't stop. We saw that all throughout the book, the book of Luke when we were going through that. Jesus loves them. He so he doesn't say if he doesn't do this, then you shame them and you hate them and you're rude to them. No, no, no. He says you treat them like a Gentile, a tax collector. What he's essentially saying is that you treat them like an unbeliever. And so I want to draw out a couple points uh, from this and what it means, uh, what it means to do church discipline and to abide by this because it can get very confusing very easily. And I acknowledge and recognize that many of you, or some of you this morning, you haven't you know, attended our church uh, for uh, much more than two years. And uh, maybe you've been a part of churches where church discipline has maybe been abused and not handled correctly. So I thought it would be helpful before we move on in 1 Corinthians 5, just to clarify some things. So what, what do we mean by church discipline? Um, the context of church discipline is family. Matthew 18, again, begins with saying, if your brother sins against you. So the way, the way to think about church discipline is not to think of it as a corporation or a country club or a club or like the Boy Scouts or whatever, um, where you get kicked out and removed. Um, but this is family. This is family. The, secondly, the process of church discipline is gradual. This is very, very important because it's not, hey, you send her out. That's never the heart. It's not, oh, you committed that one sin, that one time, and I, I think that sin is disgusting, and you just need to be gone. You know, our church isn't a, a place for sinners like, like you. No, 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 no. This is not a, a, a you sin and you get kicked out of the church. This is, again, dealing with unrepentant, hardened hearts over time. It's constantly and repeatedly going to these people out of love and prayerfully pleading with them to return to Christ, So the process of of church discipline is gradual. But thirdly, the motivation for church discipline has to be love. It has to be love. It's love for the person that is in sin, but it's also love for the church, the greater church. We We have a responsibility to protect the flock, to protect the sheep. Warren Wiersbe said this, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. So the motivation has to be love. And fourthly, the goal, this is the whole point of today, the goal of church discipline is restoration. Restoration. The goal must always be restoration, which is why immediately after this passage in Matthew, Jesus goes on to talk about forgiveness. The goal must always be restoration. So that leads us back to 1 Corinthians 5. When Paul here, he writes about removing this man from the church. He's talking about the end of the process. It wasn't, hey, I heard a report that someone sinned once and you got you to gotta kick him out and get him out of here. No, no, there's been a process. And Paul says, you need to remove this person from the church. You need to take sin seriously now. Look at verse five. He says, I have decided to deliver deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa, what is he saying here? Deliver someone over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh? What is he saying? What Paul is saying here is, is removing this man from the church, it's no longer as if he's under the household of God but he's under the realm of the enemy. And Paul is saying in removing him from the church, it's to say, we cannot affirm that you are a member of the household of God because we do not see the fruit of your faith in Jesus. And that covering that we have as believers is removed. And then the last part of the verse, is, of verse five is so key. Why do, why do we remove him? Why do we deliver him over to Satan? So that, that's so important, so that His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Again, the goal of church discipline is not punishment, it's restoration. When removing someone from the church, this man would be left alone with himself, his sin, and with Satan. And hopefully, Lord willing, the emptiness that that would bring would lead him to a place of repentance. You think of the, the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son. That's exactly what this happened. The father let his son go. The father never stopped lo- loving him. The, the father never stopped waiting for him. But when the son had to hit rock bottom out in the world, didn't he? And then he came, it says he came in Luke 15. He came to his senses and he returned home and the father was there. Restoration. That is the goal of church discipline. But remember, it all comes from a place of love. It upholds the standards of God's word, but it also holds people responsible for their actions. Now, when it comes to church discipline, you might be wondering, especially if you're new, does this ever happen in our church? (laughs) Does church discipline ever happen at Calvary Chapel Southeast? I would say absolutely. I would say that Matthew 18 is happening all of the time. Matthew 18 should be a normal, please know my heart here, a normal part of ministry. Why? Because we sin all of the time and we struggle with sin all of the time. Now, when I say Matthew 18, know this, I'm not just talking about the end process. I'm talking about the beginning, about someone. You and I, one-on-one going to someone and saying, hey, I've seen this in your life. I don't know if I'm misreading you, but I love you. And I just want to check on you. Or, hey, you, you kind of offended me with your tone. I don't know if you were meaning to be mean or you're just having a bad day. We see this all of the time. I'm so grateful for those of you that have come to me and said, Ryan, you kind of looked intense in the lobby. Did I do something to offend you? Like you're calling, calling me out. It's like, you know what? No, you didn't. But I need to be aware of my, of my facial expressions or whatever, you know. We see this all of the time. But what about the end of the process? Does it ever get to a point where we would actually remove someone from the church? I would say yes. We have and we will when necessary. It doesn't happen a lot. I think to my knowledge, I've I've only experienced it one time and that was 15 years ago. 15 years, I was an intern and there was a young man. He was preying upon the young women in the church and we had to follow this Matthew 18. We addressed him and he was just unrepentant. We just said, for the, for the protection of the church, we just can't have you fellowship here. And let me say this, removing someone is always the last case scenario. It is the worst case scenario. We pray, I pray, our pastorals have praise that this never has to happen, that we first plead with people. But if it gets to that place, we will and we should lovingly follow God's word in doing that for that person's good and for the protection of the church. So there's this problem, unrepentant sin, Paul's solution, it's church discipline. And then he gives them this warning. Look at verse six. He says, your boasting is not good. Remember, they've become arrogant. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And so he uses this analogy of leaven or, or yeast. And most of you know how this works. But yeast is small. It's unseen oftentimes, but it gradually spreads throughout the whole, making the bread rise. And so the warning here is that if you and I, if this church, if our church doesn't take sin seriously, even though it might just be a small fraction, a small bit, it may be unseen to so many that it will spread quickly throughout the whole church and bring that church to ruin. And this is where we see one of the most important points of this chapter. Paul's primary concern is not necessarily with one man's sin, but the health of the church. I want you to notice, Paul doesn't necessarily condemn that man for his sinful affair, although clearly that is the problem. But Paul's focus, again, is not condemning the man, but he scolds the church for their complicity in it. He says, your boasting is not good. Remember, you should be mourning over this. 1 Corinthians 5, again, is not the story of one man's sin. It's the story about a church that stopped taking sin serious. So here they are, this church, the members, they're arrogantly tolerating the sin. They didn't realize that the whole church would be affected by it. Look at verse seven. Paul says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, listen, clean out the old leaven, clean out the sin. Purge it, get rid of it. He says, that represents who you were. He says, let's move on to purity and holiness, the the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Why? Because Christ is our Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed for our sin. He's delivered us from the bondage of sin. We should have nothing to do with who we were, what we used to do in our former way of life. And the imagery here that Paul's using is that of Passover, When the Israelites were commanded to prepare uh, for exodus out of Egypt, they were were to get rid of all of the yeast in the house, to completely sweep the house free of it. That picture of sin, get rid of it all. And this leads us to an application that Paul gives. Look at verse 9 through 10. It says, I wrote to you in my, my letter not to associate with immoral people. Pause real quick there. This tells us that Paul wrote to them previous in a letter that we do not have And in this letter, we're taking it from the text here, we're assuming that that he talked to them in this initial letter about not associating with immoral people. But clearly, they were confused about what he said and meant uh, by it, and so they took it the wrong way. So he seeks to clarify, verse 10. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world (laughs) or with the covetous and swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. (laughs) That's all there is. So, Paul initially wrote again to this church, don't associate with immoral people. Those are the people that have ongoing unrepentant sin in their lives, and they thought he was talking about unbelievers, non Christians. And Paul's like, guys, wake up. Like, you would have to, like, that's never gonna happen. Like, you're never gonna find those people that are free of sin. Like, oh, you know, to be a follower of Jesus means I should never associate with non Christians, you know, who are, are sexually immoral. But Paul here is writing to them and says, guys, you misread, you misheard, you misinterpreted the heart behind what I was writing. I'm not at all saying, like, don't associate with unbelievers. Like, you've been sent into this world. We learned that from Jesus himself. You are to be in the world. You are to be a friend of sinners like Jesus. We've been given a mission from God. So, of course, I didn't mean you're not to, you know, associate with unbelievers. I think of Jesus when he he said in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. You have a role in this world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are on the house. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, we have this important role that we play in the world. We're to be salt and light. And we cannot be salty if we're never applied. So, of course, God wants us to be in the world, but He doesn't want us to be of the world. Look at verse 11, Paul continues to clarify. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul, he's making himself very clear here. I'm not talking about how to deal with non-Christians. I'm talking about how to deal with those who claim the name of Jesus for those that claim to be part of the body of Christ and yet continue in immorality with no remorse, no repentance, Paul says, have nothing to do with them. He says, don't even eat with such a one. He's talking about fellowship. In this culture, the greatest way to have fellowship, to express friendship was to share a meal together. I would liken it to my life. If you want to express friendship and fellowship with me, let's share a meal together. But in this culture, that was the case. He says, don't even eat with them. Separate yourselves from them. And then he says in verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not know that those who, uh, do you do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now the sad thing for me is the church oftentimes has done the exact opposite of this. Oftentimes in the church, we have done a good job at pointing out the world's sin while at the same time overlooking or covering up our own. And I think we have to be very careful about that. I have to be very careful about that in my own life because it's easier to judge someone else's sin than to look internally at your own. And Paul says, judging unbelievers, that's God's job. Not ours. But what we learn here is that Christianity is not a private issue. We're a family connected together by Jesus Christ. And what you do and what I do is each other's business. Paul is not saying we are to be self righteous and judgmental and condemning, and those are all sins. Paul is not establishing, you know, a new ministry here. It's like, hey, we've got a new ministry opening for fault finding in the life of the church. Like, anyone want to sign up for it? He's not saying that at all. As Pastor Doug has always said, we are our brother's keepers. And we see that throughout scripture. And when one of our brothers or sisters is violating the word of God in willful disobedience, we must take action out of love. As we, as we close, I want to just end with this word of encouragement. I want to give one huge clarification, and that is this. Because this is a strong word about church discipline, about moving, removing someone from the church when that's necessary, I want to say that this is not talking about someone who is struggling with sin. This is talking about unrepentant people who are walking in their sin and they're celebrating it. I bring this up because I think we should all feel a holy reverence. And I think we should all feel the weight of sin in this. But what I don't want you to fear is that, oh, oh, like I sin and now I'm gonna get kicked out of the church. Listen, we're all sinners. I am a sinner We're all broken. Jesus, listen, this is the good news this morning. Jesus is making us new together. He's delivering us from those things. You can clap for that. That's good news. None of us have this figured out. None of us have our act fully together. Some of us have our act better together than others. We are completely dependent upon Jesus. We struggle in sin together. We strive by the grace of God to overcome sin. We confess it. We repent of it every day. (laughs) And we do that together. But the warning in this is giving that that it is giving is to a hard heartedness, an unrepentant heart towards sin. But I do want to say this if that's you today, if you're like, hey, that kind of sounds like my life, I sin and I don't even feel bad about it anymore. I sin and I I don't I don't even care. If that's you today, then I want to call you to repent and come to Jesus. I want you this morning to see that repentance is beautiful. Some people think of repentance as a harsh word, but it's a beautiful word. But listen to this. If you're running towards destruction, And God, your heavenly Father, is yelling, saying, Stop, turn around, you're gonna destroy your life, repent. That is an invitation of love towards you. Don't play with sin. The call this morning is to run to God. Run to God. And for others of you, the call for us is don't tolerate sin. When you see blatant sin in the life of your brother or sister in Christ, in the spirit of love, come alongside that person in all humility. What is the goal of church discipline? I think of Paul's words to the church in Galatia, Galatians 6.1. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The goal of church discipline is restoration. It's to bring them home. Amen. You don't want to know the best part of this story. As Paul wrote another letter to the, to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians. And I think it's in chapter 2 we're told. And we kind of get it from the text. is that the church did listen to Paul. The church did take his advice and remove this guy from fellowship. But it worked. The man, as, as far as we know, 2 Corinthians 2 reports that he did eventually, we don't know when and how long, repent of his sin. And Paul, yeah, amen. And that is the goal is restoration to the body. And Paul would write to them in 2 Corinthians 2 and says, Forgive him, bring him back. Comfort him now because he's beaten himself up. Comfort him, bring him back. The goal of church discipline is restoration. My prayer for us as a church is God, help us to see these things as you see them. To take sin seriously. Lord, help us to love each other, to weep for each other. Why? So that we can watch the greater working of God in people's lives as they repent. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and even passages like these where you call us so clearly and strongly just to take sin serious. And Lord, help us, I pray, just to love each other well in this.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.